about this morning, I want to start by telling you about something that happened to me when I was in the ninth grade. For reasons that are still lost to me, um, I decided that it would be a good idea to run for class president in ninth grade. Has anybody done that? Anybody, any class presidents through high school here? I don't know why I did this. There were seven or eight other uh, people who were running for class president at the same time. And I did what all the other candidates did at that time. I had my campaign team, which consisted of me, walk around the school and hang up flyers asking people to vote for me. And then I made several promises that if they voted for me, I would come clean on. Now, one day I was walking down the hall of my, one of the halls of my school. It was the, the week before the election. And do you ever, have you ever been somewhere and you, you turn the corner and you realize something's a little bit off? You know, he's like, something's up, and I don't know what's up. I had that feeling as I was walking down this hall. And then, and then right, right when I was like, what's going on, a kid kind of jumped out behind a locker and beamed me in the head with a watered-up piece of paper. And it didn't hurt, but it just kind of surprised because you're not expecting to get hit in the head with a wadded-up piece of paper. And, and I bent down to pick up the piece of paper, and I realized that it was a wadded-up campaign flyer of mine. They had ripped this off the wall. And as I'm looking at this, there was a small group of boys that came up to me, and one of them got in my face, and he says, you will never be class president. And this thought hit me. I'd never even thought about this. It was the first realization that, uh, that I ever had in this moment. It was that there are people walking the halls of this school that hate my guts. I didn't know that before. And out of my school, out of my class, it was probably four or five hundred freshmen at that my school that I was going to at the time. And I never thought about it until right then that there is a group of people wanting me to fail, conspiring to get me to fail. And when this kid confronted me and was like, "You're never going to be class president," you know, obviously. Uh, one of my opponents had a much more aggressive campaign team than I did. And, and I'm like, I couldn't believe it. In case you're wondering, I did not become class president that year. And it's probably just as well because I would have never been able to fulfill the campaign promises that I had made. Like, you know, no homework for the rest of the year. That was one of them. And extend lunch by four hours. That was another one. I, I don't think I could have fulfilled it. But at any rate, it was, it was an eye-opening experience that... There's people that want me to fail. Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever had anybody actively gather people, organize a crew to make sure that you are not successful? And if that's ever happened to you, then then we have something just a little bit in common with Jesus. Just we get a, a little taste of what Jesus went through during the life of his ministry, especially during the last week of Jesus' life. You see, this is what this is the time frame that twenty chapter twenty six covers, Jesus' last week. And in that last week, there was this intensifying effort to get rid of Jesus. There was this small group of people, the Pharisees, the, the, the religious leaders, those folks, who campaigned, who worked against Jesus, that did everything that they could think of to put a stop. And it wasn't just them. It is during this week that we read that one of Jesus' closer friends, his inner circle, is going to betray him. And that betrayal will lead him right to the cross. 
So please open to page 367 if you haven't done so yet. We've been studying through the entire Bible uh, for a good part of this year. And for the last few weeks, we've been studying the Gospels. This is Jesus's ministry. We've been using this resource to help us do it. It's called the story. This is the Bible word for word, but it's rearranged a little bit, put in chronological order so that it reads uh, more smoothly and in order. And this is just a resource that's been helping us learn God's word and absorb God's word and apply God's word. And we are actually getting close to the finish, but if you're here for the first time and you are like, man, I would like to get my hands on a copy of that. I would like to read it and I would like to learn God's word this way. I think God wants to show me some things or even, hey, I'd like to jump on board right where you're at and do this study with you. Then you are invited to do so. We've got a number of these copies out at our welcome center, which is just out these doors to your left. And we'd like to give you a copy. It's our gift to you. It's also our invitation for you to come back and to continue this series with us. But we are in the New Testament now. We're just about done with the Gospels, and, and we have learned some things about Jesus through this. He was born in a miraculous way. He was born to a virgin. This virgin's name was Mary. She was carrying inside of her the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And she gave birth to this son, and people came all over to worship him. He would grow, and then he would enter into the ministry, and he would spend about three years of his life glorifying God, teaching other people. He would teach in, these form, in this form called parables, which we've learned are these earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And people, when Jesus would talk about the Lord this way in story form in these parables, people were like, whoa, we've never heard God talked about like this before. The rabbis don't teach about the Lord this way. The Pharisees don't, but Jesus did. And they, they noticed he taught with such authority. And they wondered, where did he get all this learning from? Jesus also did miracles. He would go around and people had sicknesses. He would heal. The, many people saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. And when Jesus would do these miracles, people would be drawn in and listen and pay attention to the things that he said. So his miracles gave his teaching even more authority. And people drew this conclusion, he is no ordinary man. And others drew an even stronger conclusion, this must be the Son of God. You remember Martha last week says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is to come. People are starting to realize who he is. So the last week of Jesus's life, he comes into the city of Jerusalem. He will spend his last few days in the city. There is a buzz in the air. More than a buzz, I would say, because when, P when Jesus entered the city on that final day, we know this moment as the triumphal entry. So if you're writing things down in your storybooks, you can write this part, triumphal entry. It's the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. So there's a buzz in the air, there's a stir. So when Jesus comes in for his triumphal entry, we call it that because literally thousands of people came out of their home and out of their businesses and they came down to the street just to get a glimpse of Jesus. The, the Bible tells us that they cut down palm branches and they laid it down in front of the road that Jesus was coming down. They took off their cloaks and they laid it down. This right here, my friends, is a physical expression that people would do back in Jesus' day to show the world that somebody very important is coming down the street. You know, that, that's why, you know, the Sunday before Easter is called what? 
Palm Sunday because it represents the day that Jesus entered into the city one week before the resurrection and people laid down palm branches. This is the moment that Jesus is, is having. Why were these people so excited to see Jesus? Well, of course, they were excited by the fact that his reputation preceded him. Some of them had heard about Jesus already. They had actually seen him in person. He was a miracle worker, all these things. But those are not enough reasons for why the streets were lined that day. You see, people came out to see Jesus on this day. And why there was such a stir in the city is specifically due in part to one miracle that Jesus had done just a few days before. Do you remember what miracle that was? We looked at it last week. There was a man named Lazarus. He was a friend of Jesus, and Lazarus had died. Four days after they put him in the tomb, Jesus came to visit the family. Do you remember what happened from our chapter last week? Jesus said, roll the stone away. And the people there said, Jesus, don't do that. No, let's not roll the stone away. Lazarus has been in there for four days. It's not going to smell good. And Jesus said, roll the stone away. And when they did that, Jesus stood at the entrance of the tomb, and he said, Lazarus, you come out of here. And right then, to the amazement of everyone, Lazarus, still wrapped up in his grave clothes, he walks out of the tomb, and Jesus says, remove those grave clothes. He is alive. And everyone was blown away. Word of this spread quickly. A lot of people had known Lazarus. A lot of people knew he had died. And word had spread quickly that this guy who was dead is now alive. This is a different level of miracle than, than maybe healing a blind man or, or healing somebody's sickness. This is somebody who was dead in the grave, not coming out who came out, there's no refuting it. And so a couple days later, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, word had spread, the man who raised Lazarus from the dead is coming down the street, and they poured out to see him. And a lot of people took notice. Let me read one thing to you. This is John chapter 12, verse 9. It says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. Okay? There, there are people who not only want to see Jesus, they want to see Lazarus. This is a guy that was dead and who was now alive. Friends, I want to tell you something. If you could prove to me that there was a guy who was dead, but now he's alive, I want to go see him. I want to see it with my own eyes. So people were wanting to see this. And, and, and so in verse 10 it says, So the chief priest, these are the same guys that wanted to kill Jesus, the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Now why in the world would they want to do that? Why would they want to kill Lazarus? Lazarus is already dead and they came alive. Why would they want to kill him? Well, it says this in the next verse. They wanted to kill Lazarus as well for on account of him... Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So there's an escalating tension happening. It's more than a buzz. It's an escalating tension. Here's a weird um, paradox here. That there were people who wanted to praise the one who could raise the dead. And then there were people who, who wanted the one who could raise the dead to die. It's interesting. 
So on the first day of the last week of Jesus' life, he enters the city to cheers and celebration, to palm branches and cloaks on the road, and people saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how the week starts. But let me tell you, by the time the week ends, it will not be like that. It starts off festive, it's going to end somber. You see, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his very own over the next couple days. Another disciple will disown him three times, and the rest of his disciples will scatter. Jesus, over the next few days, will be put through this joke of a trial. It's a sham trial. It's a kangaroo court. Sole purpose is to get him killed. During that time, there will be soldiers, Roman soldiers, who will put this robe on Jesus' beat-up body, and they will mock him and make fun of him. You see, these same soldiers, they will take thorns, and they will wrap them together, and they will create this crown of thorns, and they will shove it down on Jesus' head. These thorns will cut deep into his brow, and he will bleed profusely from this head wound, and they will make fun of him. They will put a scepter in his hand, and the soldiers will kneel down and mock him as if he is their king. There will be moments where they'll rip the beard out of his face. They will strike him on the cheek and then say, who did that to you? Prophesy. Tell us who hit you. They will do all kinds of things to him. They'll eventually nail him to a cross and hang a sign above his head that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It was not a compliment. It was like, and there's your king. And while on the cross, he will endure more mocking. And the soldiers and others will come by and say, look, there's the king of the Jews. Here's the king of Israel. Here's your king. And only if they had really known at the time the magnitude of their actions that they actually were mocking the true son of god god in the flesh who three days later would prove that he really is the king of kings and the lord of lords it was three days later the ground is going to shake there's going to be a massive stone rolled away from the entrance of this tomb the veil in the temple will be torn in half signifying that god is now accessible to all through jesus and Jesus will come out of that tomb for the sins of the world, including the ones that nailed him to the cross. Oh, if they'd only known what they were doing. The night before Jesus, um, you know, the night before Jesus was, all this was put into motion. The betrayal, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the trial, all the things we read about in this chapter. The night all this started, he met with his disciples. And he did something that really shocked them. Now you would think by this point in Jesus' ministry, there's really nothing else he could do that would shock them. Haven't they seen it all by this point? But the thing that he's going to do for them that night, um, his last night with them, is going to shock them more than just about anything they've seen. And this act that Jesus will do for them truly captures the way that God feels about us and the way that he wants us to feel about others. So on page 367, let's read about this really shocking moment. This is John chapter 13, verse 1. And it says this, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the, to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, you may want to just make a note there. We're going to come back to this, but just, just make a mental note that uh, Judas has already set in motion some things, okay? And there he is with his friends. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, at first glance, we might be tempted to just kind of say to ourselves, well, what's the big deal with this? So Jesus is going to wash off their feet. What, what's the big deal? Jesus washing feet. I don't, I don't understand. To us, we might say, what's the big deal? But to the disciples, this possibly could have been the most shocking thing that Jesus had ever actually done for them. Now, foot washing in Jesus' day was not a pleasant experience. And come to think about it, honestly, foot washing today is not necessarily a pleasant experience either. Now, my wife and I had an anniversary a few years ago, and I remember saying to her, hey, honey, what do you want to do for our anniversary this year? And she said this to me, you know what I would really love? I would love it if you and I would go get a couple's pedicure together. And I'm like, really? And after some back and forth that included, how much do you love me? Do you really love me? You'll do this. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Fellas, have you been there? No hands went up. You know you have. So there we are, and we put our feet in the tub, and we're getting our feet washed. And I, I kept finding myself saying this to the lady down there. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you got to do that. I'm, I, I know that toenail funks out like that a little bit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Listen, foot washing in Jesus' day was not a pleasant experience. In fact, um, foot washing was reserved solely for hired servants or in, in this culture where slavery was still very much in effect. If you had a slave, this was a slave's job. This was a, a paid servant's job. This is in an era where a lot of people just walked around barefoot. Other people wore sandals. And, you, you know, it was just a dusty, dirty area. There's no paved street. So you might leave your house with clean feet. You're going to go to your friend's house and your feet are dirty and so um, it was customary for you to provide a way for somebody to wash their feet off. And if you had resources, then your guests would come into the home and then your paid servant would actually wash their feet off before they came into the house. This was good hospitality in that culture. So you greet somebody in your house now, you might say, hey, can I take your coat for you? Would you like something to drink? It's being hospitable. This is hospitality. But this was not the job for Jesus. In fact, the disciples would look at this and, and they're like, what are you doing? There's going to be objections. No, no, not for the Messiah, not for the Son of God. You're not going to be the one washing our feet. But you see, I'm going to let you in on a little secret ahead of time why Jesus would even do this. Jesus is going to wash their feet so that he could model for them an attitude that he wanted them to exemplify in their own lives. They're not going to get it all right now. 
what Jesus is going to do for them will be something that they will look back on for years to come and remember the example that Jesus set for them. Here's how it went down. This is John chapter 13, verse 6. He's washing their feet, and he comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Don't you love Peter? Multiple times I pointed out those times where Peter's like the first to speak up, the first to stand up, the first to, to shout out, the first to swing his legs over the boat and walk on water, the first one to draw a sword and chop off somebody's ear. That's Peter. And he says, no, Jesus you are not going to wash my feet. And listen to what Jesus said. Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Now, friends, I could spend a long time talking about um, not just exactly what Jesus is saying, but the symbolism that comes along with it. But he says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And then, then Peter said this, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Don't you love Peter. He's like, man, if that's what it takes to be a part of you, don't stop with my toes all the way up to my head because I want to be all a part of you. Now, Jesus is saying a lot of things here, but Peter's making this connection. If this is what it takes to be a part of what you're doing, then wash all of me, not don't just stop with my feet. And then this is what happened. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that, he, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. I love Peter's response. Then you wash every last bit of me because I want to be a part of what you're doing. Now contrast how Peter responded to Jesus and Judas. Let's go back and talk about Judas. Oh, yes, Judas is getting his feet washed as well. When Jesus bent down to wash Judas's feet, Judas had already struck his deal with the Pharisees, and Jesus already knew that in a few short hours from now, this man is going to betray him with a kiss. And still here is Jesus quietly allowing Judas to have his feet washed as an equal with the other disciples. Judas is an outright enemy of the Lord by this point in the story. And Jesus knew it, yet he was still humble enough to get down and wash the feet of his enemy. And I'm going to tell you something right now. You may have never even thought about it in these terms before, but this tells me a lot about Jesus. Doesn't it tell you something about Jesus? that he could get down and wash the feet of someone who has become his enemy. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't know if I could have done it. If I knew that Judas was about to stab me in the back, I don't know how I could show him such kindness like Jesus did. It tells me a lot about Jesus. It makes me think a lot about myself. If you really think about this, this is actually Jesus practicing what he has preached for years. If you go back to early in Jesus' ministry, one of the very first recorded sermons of Jesus, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, it's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We, we hear Jesus say this. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Interesting. 
This is Jesus practicing what he preached. Now that very week, perhaps just a day or two earlier than this foot washing moment, there was somebody that came up to Jesus and they said, hey Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in all the, of all the law? In other words, it's the same question. Like, what's the greatest law in the Bible? What's the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say? Do you remember? This is Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. You know, with all of Jesus' power, the Bible speaks multiple times at the command that Jesus had. And we could have called angels to read all the things that Jesus could have done. He could have right there snapped his finger and turned Judas into dust, okay? He had that power. And there's some of us in here that's like, I wish he had. But what a tremendous picture of a loving father washing the feet of his betrayer before he goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world for many of whom would never care. You know, I I can promise you that as the disciples years later look back on this moment and they remember Jesus washing the feet of Judas, it will mean something. Now, if Jesus would have turned them into dust, all the disciples would have remembered. They'd be sitting around the campfire saying, remember when Jesus snapped his fingers and turned Judas into dust? And they would have completely missed the greater truth here. Remember when Jesus bent down and washed Judas' feet knowing that he was about to get stabbed in the back. How should we guys respond to those people that are actively conspiring against us how should we behave towards them what what about that what do you think when they sat around the campfire thinking about all the opposition that the church was getting and they remembered jesus washing judas's feet that night and maybe they just said how should we respond Well, the story goes on. This is John chapter 13, verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus basically told his disciples, I want you to follow my example. I want you to treat others the same way I'm treating you. There's all kinds of application through here, but probably the most obvious one is Jesus saying, you love others like I'm loving you. You be a servant to others as I'm being a servant to you. You are not greater than anyone. You humbly serve people. You will be blessed if you do these things. And friends, that was an overarching tone to the first days of the church. Max Lucado, who actually has his name on the front cover of your storybooks, he's one of the contributors in putting this together, has written extensively. 
And one of the books that he has written in the past is a book that was simply titled Six Hours, One Friday. And it's uh, documenting in only ways that Max Lucado can uh, and emphasizing what Jesus went through, those six hours hanging on the cross. Now in that book, Max writes about a missionary and a missionary who was ministering to the needs of a very remote tribe um, in Israel. This is one of those tribes that had very little access to the outside world. And uh, this missionary, when he was working with these people, uh, a great disease, an infection had come throughout the village. And people were dying every day. Now this missionary knew that there was a cure to this illness, but what, in order to get it, the whole tribe is going to have to cross the river where there is, there is a hospital not too far away. They could get there. And so the missionary is desperately pleading with the people to cross the river with him. He knows where the medicine is. Here's the problem though. There was a superstition in the tribe that evil spirits lived in the river. And anybody that goes into the river and goes underwater would be attacked by one of these evil spirits and they would not cr cross the river. And this missionary tried all kinds of things to convince them, but they wouldn't do it. Now let me pick up, let me read how Max Lucado describes what happens next. He said, the missionary explained how he had crossed the river and was unharmed, but they were not impressed. He then took them to the bank of the river and placed his hand in the water. They still wouldn't go in. He walked into the water up to his waist, splashed water on his face. It didn't matter. They still were afraid to enter the river. Finally, he dove into the river, swam beneath the surface until he emerged on the other side. He raised a triumphant fist in the air. He had entered the water and escaped. It was then that the people of that village broke into a cheer and they followed him across. You know, in this story, I see a similarity between what this missionary did for that tribe in Brazil and what Jesus has done for you and for me. You see, this missionary didn't just talk about it, about what it would be to be saved. No, no, no. He jumped right in and he showed them. And, you know, I think about Jesus. He didn't just talk about what it would take for us to be saved. He jumped right in and led the way with his example and ultimately giving up his life that we could be saved. I think about the span of Jesus' ministry. When, you, when he started his ministry down in the water, being baptized, and the Spirit of God came and hovered on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, who I love, who I'm well pleased. Jesus was baptized, not because he needed sins forgiven, but to set for us an example to follow. And if you trace it all through Jesus' ministry, much of what he did was to provide for us an example to follow. And here we are in just moments before he is to die, and he is setting for us, not just his disciples, but for us as well, an example to follow in humility and in servanthood. And then he will finally give his life on the cross to show us how to get to God to pay the penalty for our sins and the sins of everyone else in the world. And he didn't just talk about it, he showed us. Is it any wonder when we talk about following Jesus, we refer to his very words. When Jesus himself said, if anyone is to come after me, if anyone is to follow me, then what are they supposed to do? Deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. 
Jesus was all about showing us the way. So when he finished with his disciples, they shared a wonderful meal that we still celebrate today of communion. And then Jesus went out to pray. His disciples couldn't stay awake. They were so tired. Judas came to betray him that night. And over the next few hours, his disciples would run away and Peter would deny him and all of these things, this back and forth would go on and eventually Jesus had to carry his cross all the way out to Golgotha and they nailed him to it. And there for six long hours, he hung on the cross for you and for me. And the example that he set for us is pick up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and come live for me. And that act on the cross and shedding his blood provided a way to have all of our sins washed away. Do you realize what he did? So it doesn't matter what you've ever done. You're never too far away from God's love. Those sins can be forgiven because of what Jesus did. The once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. He died there. His last words were, it is finished. An appropriate final saying. He was put in the tomb. Three days later, well, that's next Sunday. Dear Heavenly Father.